Welcome to Off Message. I'm Isaac Devere. You think as long as Donald Trump's president, uh, black women are going to turn out in these uh, surging numbers for Democrats? Absolutely. And I think that will continue to grow because I think black women are realizing the power of their vote and of their influence. And I'm hoping that not only will we turn out, but we will continue to seek to lead. Today's guest, Keisha Lance Bottoms, the new mayor of Atlanta. I know this is a podcast, but let me start by asking to pull up a visual. Do a search for Atlanta mayoral runoff map, something like that. What will come up from last December when Bottoms won is a pretty stark picture of the city divided into two colors, almost exactly north to south. She won in the southern part of the city, traditionally more black part. The other candidate won overwhelmingly in the more affluent, more white part of the city. Bottoms won by 821 votes, barely, against a woman who was running as an independent but had a lot of ties to Republicans in an overwhelmingly Democratic city. So when I caught up with Mayor Bottoms when she was in town for the Conference of Mayors winter meeting a few weeks ago, I wanted to talk about that, the microcosm of progressives who didn't get their preferred candidate sitting on their hands, not turning out to vote. And meanwhile, of voters who didn't feel she was bold enough in her own proposals to get people to vote for her. That's part of it. But I also want to talk about a topic that's coming to define politics right now because of how much it's defining Democratic campaigns. The power of black women. I get a lot more into this topic in the article that's up on the website right now, so please check that out. What it looks like when Tom Perez, the DNC chair, calls black women the backbone of the party. But what black women in Georgia and beyond are looking for in order to keep turning out and how that could shift what elections look like in the South and for presidential races for years to come if Democrats can make Georgia a swing state. There's also getting to know a woman who's now one of the top black female elected leaders in the country and hasn't ever before gotten into as much detail about her personal life and story as we did in this interview. It's fascinating stuff and a real window into who she is as a person. I hope you'll agree. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Isaac Dover and email me your thoughts at Isaac at Politico.com. And remember to subscribe and rate us. Every subscription, every rating helps. Gets the word spread, gets more people listening to Off Message. Next up, an interview with Matt Gates, the Republican congressman from Florida, who's embraced his role as a defender of President Trump on every Russia question, and also as a nurturer of a range of theories that he says are not conspiracies. And now, my conversation with Keisha Lance Bottoms. I wonder, uh, does anybody ever ask you to sing? <laughs> <laughs> Not if they've ever heard me sing. <laughs> so it didn't come down uh, no, genetically. <laughs> I can't dance and I can't sing. <laughs> and my mother thinks that I can because she's my mother. But no, I didn't get any of the talent. <laughs> Well, I ask you that because of your father. He was very successful in the 60s and pretty well known, uh, Major Lance. Do you remember him as a success? I do. I was born in 1970, so it was on the tail end of the height of his popularity. But one of my earliest memories, we were living in England, and he was doing um, a show at, at this theater called The Torch. And these women jumped on stage and ripped his shirt off. And that really freaked me out. So you're like how old at that point? <laughs> I was three. Yeah. So, um, so, of course, like a three-year-old trying to understand what's going on. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I knew that he was 
a big deal to some people. I really didn't understand why, because he wasn't Michael Jackson. He wasn't the Jackson 5. He wasn't any of the people <laughs> who I liked. But I knew that he had some really famous friends. Mm-hmm. And then his career hit a wall, right? Do you remember as that was happening, uh, what that was like? Obviously, you're still pretty young at that point. You know, my dad was just my daddy. So life outside of him bringing someone famous to our house or performing was a very normal family life. Mm-hmm. Um, we lived in a nice middle-class neighborhood, and he coached baseball. So the extraordinary part of that was when my mom moved And I didn't quite understand what that was about. And shortly after they separated, my dad moved with us. And I later learned the house that I'd grown up in, we had lost it in a foreclosure. And then I came home from school one day and suddenly everything changed because there were police officers all over my house. And I saw them taking my dad away in handcuffs. You're eight years old at this point? I was eight. So... There were these extraordinary moments, but I never saw my parents argue. I never saw anything that looked out of the ordinary other than we moved from the only home I had known. Yeah. And, you know, as I've gotten older, the blanks have been filled in. But even after my parents divorced, they still had a wonderful relationship. And even with all of my dad's struggles and issues, my mother was always very careful not to say anything disparaging about him. Mm -hmm. She always wanted me to form my own opinions. So your father was arrested because he got into drug dealing. uh, He did. And served three years, is that? uh, Served three years. And I understand it in a very different way than I did, of course, at eight. What I understand is now my dad was born on a sharecropper's farm in Mississippi and had moved to Chicago and really had this overnight mm-hmm. success. So he didn't have a formal college education or even any type of vocational training. And when his popularity started to wane as an entertainer, he still had a family and mouths mm-hmm. to feed. And he made some very poor decisions. I suspect they were probably temporary decisions in his mind because it was always about making it until the next because he never stopped trying to perform and um, do those things. But, um, and, you know, there were some addiction issues there as well. Mm -hmm. So the thing that I've I've reconciled with as an adult, sometimes really, really, really good people make bad decisions. Mm -hmm. And anytime you're dealing with any type of addiction, and you're dealing with life stressors, trying to understand how to feed your family can make you make very desperate, poor decisions. I would imagine going to see him in jail when you're 9, 10 years old is a pretty searing experience. Um, The the jails that I've gone to have all been as an adult and for reporting purposes, Um, and I haven't even gone to that many, I should say. Yeah, it's, uh, it's something I'll never forget. And he would be moved to different prisons across uh, across the state, and I can tell you about each one. And Each one makes an impression. Does, and uh, what always struck me is there were, the prisons are full of men who look just like my dad, mm-hmm. and their children would be there to see them. But, you know, my dad always kept his head up high, and even... When he was in prison, I recently met someone, which was really interesting. 
she was in a women's prison, which was near one of the prisons he was in. And she told me about my dad creating some singing group. And I I do remember that and allowing them to perform in the in the prison at the prison. Yeah. Um, and, you know, her face, she was beaming mm-hmm. um, when she shared that story. So my dad had just a heart of gold. He was always seeking and trying to do something for somebody else. How does that affect the relationship after he gets out as you are at that point becoming more of a, a teenager or adult and, and thinking about things? Um, my dad and I always had a really close relationship. And he never, I never asked about the decisions he made and he never talked about them. Mm-hmm. Um, I later went back and pulled the criminal file because, and this was after he passed, I just wanted to better understand what had happened and why it had happened. But he was a very different person. I think that, you know, obviously this very public fall from grace, if you will. And the records just never really started selling again, but it never stopped him from trying. So mm-hmm. he was still recording. He was still making music. Even until two weeks before he passed, he had performed at the Chicago Blues Festival. But it's, you know, it's really hard when you are knocked off your right. feet to really stabilize. And then he started to have health challenges mm-hmm. that it seemed as if each time he would be really close to making a meaningful combat, he would have these health challenges that would set him back. And so one of the things that struck me about the, sort of the, way, the path that your life has taken is that you, you ended up serving alongside the judge who sent him, who sentenced him, right, who sent him to jail. Right? Well, it was the prosecutor. The prosecutor, I, I, sorry, I, but yeah. as a judge, yeah. I, I learned this looking at the criminal file, that there was a guy who I was seeing in the courthouse uh, weekly, and he was actually the prosecutor on my dad's case. And, you know, it was not a situation where my dad ever talked about or acted as if someone had wronged him. Mm-hmm. I mean, he fully accepted and took responsibility for what he had done. So I didn't have any hard feelings towards right. his person because he, he was wrong. Did he remember that he had been involved in that case? or was it I just- never spoke with him about huh. it. I never spoke it's with him It's interesting to it. not have the... The compulsion to to talk about it with him, just because it felt settled in your mind. Well, and I think that's um, that's my mother in me. That you just you get up and you dust yourself off and you just keep moving. And it was nothing. It's interesting. It's not even a conversation uh, that I wanted to have and didn't have it. It was just. Something that had happened in our lives that changed our lives forever, changed the structure of our family, my family as I knew it. I See, it was like the death of my family. But what was more devastating than my dad going to prison, I think, was when my parents divorced, when mm-hmm. we moved from the childhood home. And then when my dad went to prison, they ultimately ended up divorce, divorcing. But... um I think just the experiencing my family being fractured that way, that was more of a process. Let's talk about your mom a little bit in this uh, forward from when the separation happens and as uh, she tries to get everything stabilized. It's a difficult moment for her. What do you remember of her in that period? 
My mother is a very beautiful woman, and she always had very beautiful clothes. And as an entertainer's wife, she had extraordinarily beautiful (laughs) clothes. But my mom used to be a stay-at-home mom. And so when she had to find, when she had to go back to work, and she actually went to work just before my dad went to prison, uh, she went to a minimum wage job with the government as a file clerk. But she would wear... (laughs) These ultra suede suits and these St. John suits. So she was the most fashionable file clerk around, I would imagine. She was, but it was because she couldn't afford to buy regular clothes to go to work in. (laughs) So the other side of that is a lot of people treated her very badly at work because they thought that she was something that she was not, but she just couldn't afford to buy regular work clothes. She had to wear what she had in her closet, which is pretty ironic. <laughs> what I remember most about that is my mom, who was ever present, then went back to work, and then she took a second job working on weekends in the apartment complex that we worked in so she could get a discount on the rent. And she went back to cosmetology school at night. So I went from seeing my mom every day when I came home from school to Basically not seeing her, I'd imagine. Not seeing her at all, but sleep in her bed so that I could feel her Mm. when she came in. Um, But she would leave before it was time for me to go to school and um, get home after I was asleep, usually. And that was for about three years. That's You're how old during that those three years? I was um, eight when my dad went to prison, so eight to 11. I have an older brother and sister who really stood in the gap. Mm -hmm. I remember my mom would leave us a couple of dollars to get lunch during the summertime. And near our house was a Dairy Queen and a grocery store. My brother was very resourceful. Most kids would go to Dairy Queen. He would go to the grocery store, and he would buy some really cheap, tough piece of meat, usually a steak, and he would like, beat it until it was as flat as a pancake and cook it. And so we would have steak and potato and, you know, and broccoli, um, but he would stretch just like a parent would stretch. But no Dairy Queen. <laughs> but we wouldn't have Dairy Queen. There's a lot that you did in your, your life before you start running for mayor, but I'm going to fast forward a little bit. I'll fast forward to December, 759 votes is your margin of victory. And there was a recount. What was it, 832, right? <laughs> I think the number changes. <laughs> I, I know it's 800 and something. That night went back and forth. I know at your opponent's victory party, there were points where they thought they were going to win. I'm sure there were points where you thought that you were going to win, and then all of a sudden she was up uh, again. 759 votes is pretty tight. It's pretty tight for a mayoral election. Uh, it's pretty tight for any election, but for a whole city picking a mayor. What's that feel like? Does that make the victory different? No, I never thought I would lose, ever. Um, that night, there was a moment that I physically dropped to my knees, and it was when uh, the vote tally was 50-50. And I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't see the screen, and so I, I didn't think it would be that close, but I guess I'm, I'm just a— true optimist. I thought I would win by 2,000 votes. That's based on nothing other than... 2,000 would have been tight. That's just what I had in my head. (laughs) It's not based on anything scientific. 
And I just dropped to my knees and I just began to pray. And that was the first time during the entire course of the campaign that I thought that I might lose. Then I just said, Lord, please don't make me lose by just a little bit. I would <laughs> rather lose in a landslide. Right. If I if I were going to lose, I just wanted to be blown out. <laughs> I didn't think I could come that close. It, just to come that close and then not win would have just been devastating. But that that was the only time that I thought we might have a problem, and that was at the 11th hour on election night. I just always believed, always knew that we would win. Well, something clicked in, 759 votes, I guess. <laughs> well, and uh, yes, and I remembered I didn't pray about how many I wanted to win by, so. <laughs> <laughs> Just lose by a lot if you're going to lose. Uh, so there are two different, very different analyses of the election that I saw that I'm curious for your take on. And these are certainly not the only two. But you ran against a woman who was running as an independent. You said she was really a Republican masquerading as an independent. But you ran also against a number of other Democrats, including uh, one who was uh, endorsed by Bernie Sanders and very proud of that endorsement. So one analysis that I saw was, okay, well, the problem that Democrats are facing overall and was captured in this election is that when the Democrats fight each other, then they don't do a good enough job coalescing. And that that's why it was so tight. That in Atlanta, a city where Democrats are favored, that an independent slash Republican came this close is because Democrats didn't do a good enough job getting together. The other one was that you're too much of a moderate, you, um, and that Democrats need to be bolder about what they're doing. Otherwise, they leave room for an independent slash Republican to come in. What do you make of those? I think that we buy too much into who says who's the one, meaning I never bought into endorsements and people lining up behind one candidate and it making a difference. Every candidate had to stand on his or her own. I think that Atlanta and the results of that election is really a reflection of demographics mm -hmm. in the city of Atlanta. We are a changing city. And if you look at the breakdown, there was a, a big racial divide. I mean, in the, the map from election night uh, and the, the runoff is an amazing picture. It is a city that is split almost exactly in half. And that's the suburbs the, versus the uh, more traditionally black parts of the city. I mean, was that what was going on? Is it just racial? I, I think from a data analysis, it probably was. It doesn't mean that I didn't campaign on the north side and I didn't try and get votes from white neighborhoods. And my opponent certainly campaigned on the south side and tried to get votes from primarily African-American neighborhoods. But, you know, a lot of it, whether it's race or socioeconomics, there certainly was a divide. And the map shows that. I think the challenge that we face as a city is extracting what that means. And I think so much, so much of it goes back to each area of Atlanta feeling as if they, being, they are being left out of mm -hmm. something, whether it's the more affluent north side saying we aren't getting enough government resources and assistance. We're having to do it all on our own. 
or if it's the South Side saying you're only seeing about the North Side and you don't care about us. That's the bigger takeaway for me. I'm less concerned about a racial divide in our city as how we're seeing about our people. Mm -hmm. And as we go about the business of our city, how we are meeting and enhancing all of our communities at their point of need. Do you see anything to the, the that argument that there were people who backed some of your other opponents who then just didn't feel the compulsion to get out and vote for you, uh, to vote for a Democrat because they didn't get their, their person and so they stayed home? It feels like we get a lot of that in Democratic politics at the moment. I think I probably saw that more so with um, the vote tally for my opponent. Mm -hmm. Then on my side, I think there was an awakening, especially with African-American voters in Atlanta, in large part because the nation was awakened. That as we talk about demographic shifts and you talk about the city of Atlanta, who's had 40 plus years of African-American leadership, what that meant for a very big African-American community. Um, so I think there were probably more people who would have voted for my opponent who didn't come than vice versa. But again, you know, I think there's a danger, especially to me as a leader, you can't rest on that. And you can't rest on, I'm an African-American in Atlanta, therefore I should be mayor. That's not productive thinking, and it's not helpful as a leader. Again, it's about what are our issues as a city as a whole, and how do we address those issues, and how are we listening to one another, and how are we working with one another? Are you sensitive to the the argument that the the other side of that argument, which of course is more on you, I guess, that people say, well, you needed someone bolder, and that that would have inspired more people, so it wouldn't have been that tight of a race. No, I. My I mean, does that frustrate you that that's out there? Because that's that's saying that you're not you you weren't a bold enough progressive, basically, well, <laughs> for the people who make that argument. What I took from that is that people wanted me to be something that I was not, and that would be more disappointing and less authentic than anything for me to pretend to be one type of leader, pretend to have one type of thought process, and then only to win, and then not be true to it. What I wanted to be able to do at the end of this race and throughout this race was to be able to sleep at night. And there was no comfort for me in lying to people or pretending to be something or someone else. And I think ultimately that's what resonated with people. Even in sharing the story about my family and my dad, that was something I'd not, I didn't talk about with my family, yeah. much less talk about publicly. But I did think it important to share that because I needed people to understand my heart and my drive and what, when I talk about community, why I feel the way that I do about community and criminal justice reform and opportunities for kids and how education really can change lives. I needed people to know I'm not talking about it in the abstract, yeah. that it's meaningful. And, you know, people, it's easy to pretend to be something you're not for a short period of time, but I didn't want to do that for a year-long campaign, and then people wonder who was the person they voted for. Yeah, and so it's, as you say it, I'm thinking about something that your your predecessor and one of your supporters, Kasim Reed, uh, said to me around this time last year. It was after the election, and I asked him 
whether he was going to start tweeting more, whether that was the solution for politicians. It was obviously right after Trump won. And he said to me, no, uh, I'm not much of a tweeter. Uh, I'm paraphrasing here. He said, look, everybody's just got to figure out whatever it is they do and do it. And if your thing is going to chicken dinners, then go to chicken dinners. Um, and right. that was the answer uh, to the authenticity debate that was going on is not to try to be authentic in the way that others have been authentic. There's a line in Ivanka Trump's book where she says something like, uh, you have to work hard at authenticity or uh, authenticity is something you have to work hard at. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's very exhausting to put on the, uh, put on a show for people. And the, what struck me during the campaign is as the campaign went on and the more and more exhausted I became, the more authentic people really got to see. <laughs> when you're tired, right? <laughs> when you're tired because I didn't have the energy to pretend. Um, and I found that people actually like me a whole lot better than <laughs> I thought they would. But the thing that really struck me was that it was more about this reckoning with a woman and a leader as a woman, which mm -hmm. is something I realize that a lot of women grapple with because I'm a doer. I'm not a talker. I'm a workhorse. I'm mm -hmm. not a show horse. And I think that's an issue sometimes and a challenge for women because we don't take credit. Yeah. We um, quite often aren't used to, we shy from the spotlight and being running for mayor, you really do have to step forward and step on the stage and yeah, you want to be in charge and and <laughs> and shine, and that's when I you know I channeled my dad and and own the moment. Do you, do you worry about that larger question for maybe not so much in the way that played in your race, but as you know, you're a Democratic uh, mayor, you're a Democratic leader in this country now, thinking about the future and politics in your state beyond the fact that Democrats are having these kinds of fights that some saw your race a microcosm of. Is that a problem, this like fight between progressives, fight about being bold, fight people getting out to vote? With, with the race in Atlanta in particular, I didn't see that as a, a fight about issues. It was a personality battle. There were so many personalities and so many personal conflicts. But that, that happens. Were I mean, the, the, the last time... I think this is right. The last time I was in Atlanta actually was for the, the DNC chairs race uh, last February. And you had two guys running against each other, Tom Perez and Keith Ellison, who are both pretty accomplished progressives when you look at their records. And yet it became a fight between who was the real progressive, which was really about who did people like more personally. And so that that does seem like it is connected to the kinds of things that were coming up in your race. I guess in a way that I, I would say yes, but there were just a lot of behind the scenes issues on. And again, this goes to being a woman. There were a lot of critiques and criticisms toward me that just would not have been thrown towards a man. Will she be her own person? Can she lead? Will she be a puppet? Um, things that I, I know never asked of men weren't asked during this race. And, and, you know, in my own right, I'll put my resume and my professional accomplishments up against anyone. So I thought that a lot of that had to do with the strong leadership mm -hmm. of my predecessor. But it was very, who's a, who's a man with a very strong personality, yep. um, but very insulting as someone who gets up every day and goes to work and works really hard and um, has had four a, kids. 
four kids and a very long accomplished career. So I, I thought that there were a lot of personal politics at play and less about issues as it relates to many of the candidates who were in the race. Uh, and then in the the runoff, it was against another woman. I wonder, racism, sexism, it's, both of them are problems. It feels like you felt more sexism in the first round of voting and maybe more of maybe not racism, but racial issues in the, in the runoff. How do those compare to each other as things that are driving what's happening in politics? Well, I thought, you know, again, locally, it was a very interesting narrative. And I think this is a narrative that mayors across the country face. Um, my husband is uh, an executive at Home Depot, and we're both attorneys. And so thankfully, we've both professionally um, been able to accomplish a lot. And there was a narrative that if that somehow we or I was corrupt. And that, um, that also tracked back to the fact that your husband knew your Kasim Reeds, your predecessor, for the, the basically their whole lives, and that that was uh, there was like a cook set up here, right? Exactly. <laughs> but it was, this, in my opinion, it was a larger narrative that was perpetuated and is often perpetuated against African American leaders that you can't be accomplished and you you can't drive a nice car and that you must be corrupt. There has to be something to it. And that was more concerning to me, just the underlying code words and language that was used. So it was not a racial divide in a very open way, but I very much felt it um, under the surface in the type campaign that was run. And, you know, I can't speak to what's happening across the country, but I do think that it's very convenient for people to create false narratives and not focus on what the issues are or the people who are actually running. I mean, is it, is, it, is it possible to compare racism and sexism as problems here? I say you are one of the new black female leaders in this country. Uh, you've had to deal with both. I, I have had to deal with both, but I can tell you I've never dealt with as much sexism as I have in my entire professional career than I have in the last year running for office. The week after you win your election is when Doug Jones won next door in Alabama. Mm -hmm. uh, that was an election that was a very strange one, um, defined uh, by the the Roy Moore allegations. Uh, but it also ended up being with uh, uh, Jones, who is a white man, got higher African-American turnout than Barack Obama did in Alabama. Does that tell you anything about where Democrats are going in the South? I think it says a lot about where Democrats are going in the South. Unfortunately, it's taken what we are dealing with on a national level, I think, to really get us energized and not taking anything for granted. But I do think we are recognizing and exercising our power in a way that we've never done it before. And that's exciting. Um, we are becoming engaged and we realize the danger of staying home. We stayed home uh, during the last presidential election, and the rest is history. And hopefully my race was not an anomaly, what you've seen with mayor's races across the country, with African-American women being elected. You saw with Doug Not Doug just Jones. being elected, right? I mean, everybody keeps saying black women are powering Democratic elections here. You are a black woman. What's going on? Is there any chance that a Republican can make inroads to black women? I think that that would be very difficult given where the Re Republican Party is as it relates to a number of issues that face our communities. I think that um, there would have to be a 180 
change in the Republican Party as a whole. I think that Democrats, by and large, understand and are at least talking about and attempting to address many of the issues that we're feeling and we're seeing and we're living in our communities on a daily basis. Um, there will have to be a, a huge shift in conversation, and I think it will be a great shift. I think it would be good for the country, but I don't anticipate it's going to happen anytime soon. But I think that the best we can hope for is that we continue to work across the aisles in a bipartisan way and 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 achieve a lot of the success that we're seeing in the but state you, and the city and Atlanta and Georgia. You think as long as Donald Trump's president, uh, black women are going to turn out in these uh, surging numbers for Democrats? Absolutely. And I think that will continue to grow because I think black women are realizing the power of their vote and of their influence. So I absolutely think that we will continue to turn out. And I'm hoping that not only will we turn out, but we will continue to seek to lead. Who's best positioned to uh, make Georgia a Democratic state? We've got a governor's race this year. One of the women running is a black woman. One of them is uh, a white woman. Um, uh, There are a lot of complicated politics that are involved here. Uh, Have you made a choice in uh, in that race so far? Well, Stacey Evans endorsed my campaign, and I think it, again, speaks to, you know, you're talking about— Stacey race. Evans is, the, is of those two, the white woman. In this Stacey case. Evans is the white woman, and I think that she's a, a great candidate. Um, I think that Stacey Abrams um, is also a very credible candidate. I think that it's going to be a tough choice for voters. But I think that um, what you'll see is that people will— closer to the election, really begin to pay attention to who both the Stacys are, what they stand for, what the, what their issues and their policies are. But I think the, the great part is that you have two women who are attempting to lead a Southern state. And right now we don't have any women elected statewide in Georgia. So this will be an incredible opportunity for the state as a whole. Can a Democrat win this year's governor's race or is it not there yet for Democrats? I think it's possible. I think there's still more work that needs to be done on the ground. I think that we still have to make sure that we have meaningful voter registration in Georgia. Um, But I think that it's possible. But there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but it's certainly possible. Do you think that the Senate race in 2020 can be competitive? I certainly do. Some people talk about your predecessor, Kasim Reed, as a potential for that. Would you like to see him run? I think that he would make a great senator. Mayor Reed was a great mayor for the city of Atlanta, very thoughtful very good at working across lines to get things done. So I think that whatever he runs for, I, I think that you it want will more be, runs at a casino. Be a nice, <laughs> a nice next chapter, whatever it may be. Let's leave it at this about the the twenty twenty presidential question. In twenty twelve, what I was told is that in about twenty eleven, they put the Obama campaign put the whole map and looked at where they were going to be competitive, and they put Arizona and Georgia on the whiteboard. And by the end of the summer of uh, twenty eleven, they thought. We're not going to even try. Yet, <laughs> Obama did pretty well in Georgia in 2012. Um, I think it was the the closest state where he, there was not an active competitive election. 2016, there was a lot of thoughts that maybe Clinton could make it competitive. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. I don't think the resources have ever been put into the state in the way they need to be to make us truly competitive. I think that if there's focused attention on Georgia— And if on a national level, we are working very closely 
on the ground with the people who know the state and understand the communities and how best to activate and motivate people, I think certainly Georgia can be in play for the Democratic Party, and I hope that it happens. (laughs) So 2020, Georgia is a swing state if the Democrats put the money there. Absolutely. All right. Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, thanks for taking the time. Thank you. Georgia as a swing state in 2020 would change just about everything about presidential election math. But then again, we've all been told for years this was going to happen. And so far, it has not. Thanks as always to Zach Stanton for producing. Make sure you subscribe. That Matt Gates conversation coming up and many more. And tell at least one person you know to subscribe too. Come on, get to it. And catch you next time on Off Message. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.